Every nine years, nine men come into the house so that I can free them from all evil. I hear their footsteps or their voices far away in the galleries of stone, and I run joyously to find them. The ceremony lasts but a few minutes. One after another they fall, without my ever having to bloody my hands. Where they fall they remain, and their bodies help distinguish one gallery from the others. I do not know how many there have been, but I do know that one of them predicted, as he died, that someday my Redeemer would come. Since then there has been no pain for me in solitude, because I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will rise and stand above the dust. If my ear could hear every sound in the world, I would hear his footsteps. I hope he takes me to a place with fewer galleries and fewer doors. What will my Redeemer be like, I wonder? Will he be bull or man? Could he possibly be a bull with the face of a man? Or will he be like me? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's been a long time coming. We finally enter the labyrinth of the Minotaur. That's right. We're going to try and leave uh, some string behind us as we uh, go through these episodes so that you can find your way back out again. But we figured this would be a perfect journey to take during October when we frequently engage on Halloween-themed episodes. Now, that cold opening, I want to point out, was from uh, the, the just fabulous short story, The House of Asterion by Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, this one is uh, translated by Andrew Hurley, and I got this out of uh, the, uh, the, the book of collected fictions, uh, which is put out by Penguin. The Minotaur is kind of the perfect monster. I, I think the Minotaur has very often been done injustice by, by films and TV shows, and one of the few exceptions I can think of is Jim Henson's Storyteller, where that Minotaur, I think, has has just the right balance of of pain and terror and anguish and 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 uh, and menace, uh, and and I like that you you don't often get a, a very full look at the Minotaur in that story. Yeah, they they do. Uh, the Henson team does a fabulous job presenting just the physicality of the Minotaur, but then also the Minotaur is written and performed in such a way that uh, that he is this true hybrid. You know, he's not just beast, but he is also uh, a, a human as well. You know, they, there's this uh, juxtaposition in his being. Uh, he stands across this threshold uh, because we 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 find him both both terrifying and tragic. You know, we fear the Minotaur even as we empathize with it, um, you know, and, it, and even as just an adversary in the myth, it, it, com- it is supposed to combine brute strength and savagery, but w- also with this cunning predatory nature. That story by Jorge Luis Borges is quite good because it captures the, the pity and the pathos that we should feel for him, but it does it in an ironic way. It's like that you feel pity for the Minotaur because he's deluded. Like he, he has mm-hmm. a very, uh, his, his vision of his role in, in the culture is very, uh, confused. Like he believes at one point, he says he gets out of his labyrinth and he wanders around in the streets and he says the people are afraid of him, but he believes it's because they recognize his royal blood and mm-hmm. they're like, oh, you know, here's the, you know, here's the, the powerful descendant of the queen. We, we must defer. Uh, but of course, the, the implication once you get to the end of the story and realize that it's about the Minotaur is that I guess they were looking at his horns. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is as as perfect a short story as, as I can uh, think of. And it is about uh, really about the, the perfect monster. And Borges, of course, totally this was this. I mean, Borges was uh, was obsessed by uh, by labyrinths and uh, and the like. So th- this is the perfect myth for him to consider. And indeed, the labyrinth is essential to understanding the Minotaur. If you take the Minotaur out of the labyrinth, 
uh, as so many works of fiction and films and games do. And all you have is like a pretty cool beast man, but just a beast man. Uh, for, for the myths to work, for the monster to have its true uh, terror and, and, and all of these other uh, emotions we're attributing to it, he has to reside within this maze, within this artificial uh, habitat uh, that is uh, seemingly designed to confuse us. Yeah, in a way, I think it's almost a mistake to have made the Minotaur into um, less of a less of a unique sort of proper noun type monster and more mm-hmm. into a species of monster that you might encounter in Dungeons and Dragons or something like that, because it really does. It takes him out of his proper context. Right, right. And, and and we'll come back to Dungeons and Dragons in a bit, because I think there are cases where it can be, where there has been some correction uh, applied. But for the most part, yeah, you you, you, te- you make the, the Minotaur into just a species, and you mostly just have a beast man. Uh, the, the setting is key. And in fact, as, uh, as Borges pointed out in another work, The Book of Imaginary Beings, uh, this is also from translation by Hurley, quote, Indeed, the image of the labyrinth and the image of the Minotaur seem to go together. It is fitting that at the center of a monstrous house, there should live a monstrous inhabitant. I agree. And I think another uniting theme here is confusion, because what is the thing that makes the hybrid scary? It's that it is a perversion. It is a confusion of nature. And what makes the labyrinth scary? Uh, this is, the, I guess, the, the more classic uh, maze understanding of the labyrinth rather than the unidirectional labyrinth. We can get into those distinctions in a bit. But the, the, the terror there is also a confusion. It's, a, um, it's you know, having the stability of nature and of direction uh, taken out from under you. You are unmoored when dealing with the Minotaur because you don't know which way is which and you don't know what kind of beast this is. Yeah, and and in, and in many ways, this basic idea reverberates through a lot of our horror fiction. I mean, a haunted house ha- has a ghost in it, you know, like that, that's that's how it works. So Leatherface lives in the crazy chainsaw house, you know, and right. uh, uh, so <laughs> Le- many Leatherface takes Manhattan would not work. Right. Uh, you know, Freddy Krueger occupies the, the realm of dreams. And even even Jason is a is a creature of like of Crystal Lake. Right. He's a mm-hmm. creature of the woods uh, of this environment that is foreign to the various teenagers and what have you that have that are visiting it. I guess that is one reason Jason Takes Manhattan is so funny is because like <laughs> it doesn't make any sense whatsoever out of his context. And you actually see that in the tone of the movie because in uh, Jason Takes Manhattan when he's walking around Times Square, the movie at that point transitions to become a full comedy, like on-purpose comedy with jokes where he just lifts his mask up at the punks and scares <laughs> them, you know, and everybody's now – and the, the, the kids are saying like, there's a maniac chasing us and the waitress at the diner is like, welcome to New York. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I'd never thought of this before, but – uh, I, I'm now assuming that movie came out after Crocodile Dundee, right? Probably. Oh, yeah, it's Crocodile Dundee, but he's Jason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, of, yeah, of course, that's another fish-out-of-water story. But the, the Minotaur is very much a fish in its own waters, uh, waters that are foreign and dark and mysterious to us. And uh, and I and I feel like, like this is the perfect metaphor for so many fears and anxieties in life. And that's another huge reason that the Minotaur myth and things that are like the Minotaur myth resonate so strongly. The idea of a realm that we're uncertain about and the things that might be in there that can harm us. I don't think we've said it so far, but we should acknowledge this is going to be a two-part series because we've wanted to do the Minotaur for years. I don't know why it took us so long to get around to it, but uh, we're going to have two episodes worth of Minotaur for you. And I think maybe at first here we should just tell the myth, right? Yeah, yeah, we should we should just remind everybody what the story is, who the major players are here, and and what happens. Now, before we, we get going, I do want to drive home, of course, that the Minotaur emerges from Greek myth, but as always, myths are amorphous. They change over time with different tellings, with different peoples and cultures. Stories merge together, stories split apart, stories are finally recorded and then re-recorded and translated, etc. Real history, magical thinking, and many other factors come into the creation of a myth, and the Minotaur is no exception. 
That's right. And th- this is one thing we talked about when we, d- when we did the Medusa episodes earlier this year that mm-hmm. I-, I find often today, like kids are really insistent on knowing what canon is, like what yeah. is what is technically canon and what is not canon. I think that that's a product of modern mythmaking, like Star Wars and stuff, where you've got ideas of intellectual property and like one artist or owner's control over what technically really happens in this mythical universe. That's not how ancient myths are. Ancient myths are, you know, there's a million different versions of them, especially with like, you know, ones where we have a lot of different sources over hundreds of years, like the Greek myths, you know, you've got sources that go back to a couple of centuries BC, and you've got sources going way up into some of our fullest sources are from the earliest century CE. And so you end up with tons of different variations. And there's no way to pick one and say, oh, this is the real version of the myth. Yeah, yeah. And I I feel like it would be healthier for us if we approached things like Star Wars in that way. I've thought about this a little bit because I've been thinking way too much about Star Wars this year. Uh, but, But yeah, I feel like the Clone Wars, for instance, this is a, you know, this is a mythic event. Uh, and you're going to have various tellings and retellings of it, and there will continue to be tellings and retellings of it. And and, and it's and the the thing itself is going to ultimately be shapeless and unformed at the center. The fixed canon is a product of a society that operates largely on the basis of fixed recorded media and has a like capitalist conception of intellectual property. I think those things are just death to mythology. Mm-hmm. You got to let it breathe. Yeah, and and certainly you see even with uh with with films and whatnot, you see that energy there in the in the fandom and people that follow. You know, we we all want to have our own interpretations of what happened, alternate interpretations. There's this yearning for 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 uh, for these interpretations, for fan fictions, for additional fleshings out of mysteries. And I think I think that's basically the same sort of energy that you would see go into the deviation and the and the recreation of myths over time. Now, having said all that, I guess we should also try to identify, though, what are the main sources we we would be looking at for the closest thing to a canonical version of the myth? I guess the closest thing to canonical would be the version of the myth that most people know. Right. And a lot of a lot of the modern understanding of of the Minotaur story, like as with many other myths, comes down to, to uh, Ovid's metamorphosis. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that was one of the, the, the key areas we turn to here. As always, I, I pick up Carol Rose's uh, uh, books of monsters and fairies because mm-hmm. she, she did such a, a fabulous job, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, nailing down the, the essential myths, uh, that sort of thing. But certainly what we're about to roll out here is not the it is not the canon, but it is maybe as close to the canon as we can sort of agree on for the purposes of moving forward. Yeah. Uh, I just want to mention another major source on this, I think, would be Pseudo Apollodorus. The, mm-hmm. the, I think this is probably now believed to be like a first or second century CE work, but it, you know, it's the Bibliotheca. It tells a lot of classic Greek and Roman myths, and it was traditionally attributed to an author named Apollodorus. Now that authorship is questioned, so it's largely known as Pseudo Apollodorus now. Ask your doctors about Pseudo Apollodorus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what's the story? Okay. All right. So, so here we go. On the Isle of Crete, there is a king who, like most kings, desires above all else to ensure and extend his reign. And as he lives in a world ruled by the gods and is himself uh, not entirely without uh, divine blood, he seeks their support. Now, given that Crete is surrounded on all sides by the sea, it makes sense to reach out to Poseidon. Oof, getting into bad company there. Yeah, but you know, kings—they are—they uh, are vain, uh, and they—they they see themselves as powerful enough to stand beside uh, uh, such deities. So he asked the sea god to deliver up a sign of his divine right to rule, as well as a proper beast of sacrifice. And so the god does just this. He delivers up this white bull from the surf. It comes, comes, comes out. It's as white as the frothing sea foam itself. And this beast comes to be known as the Cretan bull. I think even this aspect of the myth is very interesting because what he does is King Minos asks Poseidon to send him a bull that he can then turn around and sacrifice to Poseidon. Yeah. So he wouldn't even really be giving of himself. He'd just be sort of returning the favor in a way. Well, I, I guess it, it does kind of remind me of like the, the, the gesture of, say, you, you visit uh, somebody's house for dinner and you bring a bottle of wine. And then the expectation is kind of like, oh, though that bottle of wine will then be opened and shared with the guests. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see that. Uh, the, the analogy I was thinking of was checking the ball in a game of basketball where you've only got one goal. Check the ball? Yeah, like you check for... the ball. You, you No, like when you... You never played half court basketball where you get to the when possession changes you you check the ball you throw it to the other team you say check and then they throw the ball back to you it is oh, a sign I, that possession has changed okay I'll take your word for it okay so the Cretan Bowl is fabulous is beautiful and and, and factors into some other myths as well but but so splendid is this beast and so self interested is King Minos that he decides to keep this trophy for himself and instead to offer up the blood sacrifice of a mortal bull so that Poseidon, you know, will still be pleased. Uh, <laughs> so it's like a, you bring a really nice bottle of wine to dinner and yeah. the host is like, oh, thanks, and then gets out the two-buck chuck. Exactly, yeah. But uh, as we've touched on before, Poseidon is certainly nobody to trifle with. Um, even if you do have a little bit of, um, of royal blood of Zeus uh, in your system, as is uh, uh, supposed to be the case with Minos. Okay, well, we know from experience that Poseidon does not deal well with slights. In fact, Poseidon does not even usually treat people well if they've done nothing to him. So he, he is, he's bad news. How's he going to react to this? Well, uh, horribly, but by comparing it to other things Poseidon has done, I mean, he, he was almost playing a little softball here. <laughs> this we'll see. Uh, but, but still, he definitely has the last laugh. So here's what Poseidon did. He bewitched Minos' wife, Pasiphae, causing her to fall in love with the Cretan bull. So she ends up longing to be one with this beast, and she convinces the master artificer Daedalus, who was then residing in Crete, to craft for her this mechanical bovine likeness that would enable her to then mate with the bull. Yes. So Poseidon bewitches Pasiphae, says, you're going to fall in love with this bull. She does. She gets Daedalus to build her a robot bull so she can get inside it and have sex with the white bull. Yes. And this results in a monstrous pregnancy, producing a monstrous hybrid, part human, part bull. This is the bull of Minos, or the Minotaur. Also known as Asterion. Yes. Um, uh, And certainly that that gets back to the title of that Borges story, uh, The House of Asterion. Now, the exact form of the Minotaur was not always well-defined. The the A.S. Klein translation of the Metamorphosis describes a, quote, strange hybrid creature, a twin form of bull and man. And Borges is actually, in that passage that I read, he's alluding to this a little bit, uh, the idea that sometimes there is this idea that maybe the Minotaur is more like the face of a man on the body of a bull rather than the reverse. So now we have the Minotaur. And it's easy to sort of overlook how strange this creature is and exactly like what its mixed lineage means because this is a monster of two worlds yet none it's the it's a product of minos's blasphemy poseidon's wrath pacifi's lust it was an unnatural being and yet it also was sacred minos could not simply just kill it and slaughter it or cast it uh, out back into the sea you know where it's uh, it's its father the bull came from so instead he chooses to hide it away and luckily he had in his employ just the right man to design um, a most elegant hiding place I want to read here from the uh, Metamorphoses, the Garth and Dryden translation that talks about this part. So Ovid writes, When Minos, willing to conceal the shame that sprung from the reports of tattling fame, resolves a dark enclosure to provide, and far from sight, the two-formed creature hide. Great Daedalus of Athens was the man that made the draft and formed the wondrous plan, where rooms within themselves encircled lie with various windings to deceive the eye. As soft meanders wanton current plays when through the Phrygian fields it loosely strays, backward and forward rolls the dimpled tide, seeming at once two different ways to glide, when circling streams their former banks survey, and waters past succeeding waters see, now floating to the sea with downward course, now pointing upward to its ancient source. Such was the work, so intricate the place, that scarce the workman all its turns could trace, and Daedalus was puzzled how to find the secret ways of what himself designed. 
Oh, that's that's wonderful. Oh yeah. So he's describing this uh, thing that's the, the, these galleries, this place that's often described as a maze or a labyrinth, uh, as as being as confusing as waters that churn back and forth without apparent rhyme or reason. Yeah, I, I love this. So he makes some comparisons to the natural world here, but but it is the ultimate unnatural environment to house the ultimate unnatural creature. But maybe I should read the next two lines, because that sets up what we're getting into now. These private walls the Minotaur include, who twice was glutted with Athenian blood. That's not a good rhyme, is it? I guess that reflects how uh, English pronunciation has changed over time. <laughs> this is a very old translation. I think it's ultimately perfect, too, that, that Minos uh, has this constructed, you know, because ultimately, again, think of the, of the Minotaur as a creature uh, representing uh, the shaming of Minos. You know, it is the revenge of, of Poseidon. But a king doesn't really suffer shame like you or I. His awfulness is common knowledge, right? He, he can't just uh, change the central vileness upon which everything spins, but he can alter the surrounding reality. He can foster confusion, misinformation. He can tear apart your faith in the ordered structure of cosmos, of society, of law or order. In short, a king builds a maze, uh, or certainly he pays a great inventor, who is, by the way, in the case of Daedalus, fleeing his own shame, uh, to build it for him. Yeah, and so it's kind of hard to understand exactly what it means that Daedalus, like the, the great craftsman, builds this maze. The other things we know of Daedalus for creating are, for example, the wings that he uses ultimately to escape uh, the, the realm of King Minos. Mm-hmm. Or Minos. I know we keep saying it both ways, and we're probably just going to keep saying it both ways. I hope you're all right with that. Uh, but yeah, he makes the wings of the wax and the feathers that he and Icarus use to uh, to escape the island. That doesn't go so well for for Icarus. We all know that story. But he, you know, and he's also uh, renowned to be you know the great master craftsman who makes statues that are so lifelike it seems as if they will they will become quickened and walk away. Yeah. But here he has made this this sort of like palace of confusion, which is ultimately some combination of prison and weapon, and it is his ultimate creation. And as, as Ovid points out, a, a creation so uh, well designed that Daedalus himself barely escapes it. Uh, and that, of course, plays more into the, the myth of Icarus. But you're right. Yes, the maze of the king becomes not only a defensive ploy, but a weapon. And indeed, the Minoan maze uh, came to feature into Minos's destructive policies. He required tributes sent each year by other lands, including Athens. And uh, these individuals were thrown into the labyrinth where they were then hunted through the twisted halls amid the echoing screams until they, too, confronted the Minotaur and were torn to bloody shreds and and presumably consumed as well. Yes, so they demand tribute from Athens. Uh, or is it just from Athens, or is it from other city-states as well? I believe other city-states as well, but of course, this is a, the, Athens is most central to the, the, the telling of the myth. Right, because ultimately the hero of the story, Theseus, will come from Athens. But from Athens, every nine years, they demanded 14 young people as sacrifice, seven maidens and seven young men. And so they would be taken away by ship, to uh, to the palace of, of Minos, and then they would be sent into the labyrinth to meet their fate as a human sacrifice to the monster. Oh, and of course, the Minotaur would eat them. I don't know if we mentioned that part. The Minotaur would yeah, devour their yeah. flesh. Yeah, <laughs> yum, yum. So enter Theseus. Theseus is, is the, the fated one, the, one the, the, the fated slayer of the monster. Um, and of course, there's more to his story as well. But basically what happens is he takes the place of a tribute that is being sent to Crete. Right. He's like, what, one of these guys who would be sacrificed? No, I'll go instead because I know what I can do. I can kill that Minotaur. Right. Uh, and of course, he is, uh, you know, he's a handsome prince. So what does he do? He, uh, you know, he, he impresses people with his charisma. He makes an ally in Ariadne, the uh, daughter of King Minos. Right. Uh, it's often said that she falls in love with him, though I don't know if that's in every telling. So for some reason, they end up allied. Yes. And, uh, and what does she do? Well, she, she gives him privileged information. She gives him a ball of string to unwind behind him as he travels through the labyrinth. And she tells him the various twists and turns that will lead him not out of the, the labyrinth, because that's what the string is for, but to the heart of the labyrinth, to the place where the Minotaur can be found. Uh, in other words, turn the, the, the hunted into the hunter. Instead of being in there just kind of lost and hunted by the Minotaur, he'll know how to get straight to the monster and kill it. 
And that's exactly what happens. He, he uh, follows her instructions. He slays the Minotaur and then follows the string back to the surface. He ends up eloping with uh, the daughter of King Minos, but then ultimately abandons her. Just totally maroons her on an island. Yes. And uh, and this is uh, though that's another great thing about the, the Jim Henson storyteller episode is that it it definitely it doesn't just play Theseus up as this perfect monster killer hero, but also shows this, I think, to at least to uh, modern interpretations and modern viewers, this unsavory nature of the hero. You know, I was thinking about how the story of Theseus and the Minotaur has actually so much in common with the story of Perseus and Medusa, especially in the broad strokes and in the way modern audiences would react to it. And and you have to imagine, are we reacting to the story with different values and in in a different way than ancient Greek audiences would have reacted to it? But, you know, some of the broad contours that are the same are starts with Poseidon doing something cruel because he's awful. And Mm -hmm. this cruelty of Poseidon results in the creation of a monster. The monster ends up living in some kind of secluded underworld where it kills people, but only really when they come to its domain, there is a young hero, the son of a king of sorts. Now in Perseus, he's actually the son of Zeus. Theseus is the son of uh, Aegeus, the king of Athens. Uh, But either way, the son of a king, the son of a king hero sets out to kill the monster. He receives tools and strategies to help him from other people. Uh, Perseus gets help from Athena and Hermes, giving him tools and advice that will help him kill Medusa. Theseus gets tools and advice from Ariadne and Daedalus that will help him kill the monster. The young hero succeeds in killing the monster, then turns out, at least on a critical reading, to be an absolute jerk. Remember Perseus going around Mm -hmm. just showing the head of Medusa to random people? Oh, Uh, yeah. And then, like, if someone ticks him off, he'll just turn him to stone with it. You know, he's just kind of rampaging through the the aisles, uh, surrounding aisles with that thing. Yeah. And Theseus, of course, abandons Ariadne on the the island. And then in the end, at least as a modern critical reader, for some reason, I, I in both stories end up feeling more sympathy for the monster. The monster is kind of pitiable. Yeah, there is this sense in in some of the tellings that that the and, and this is also reflected in Borges' uh, retelling that the monster doesn't even necessarily put up much of a fight or get to put up much of a fight. He is just dispatched by uh, our hero here because you have to again. I think you have to think of the Minotaur not only as an occupant of the maze but a part of the maze, a function of the maze, like the killing center of the maze. And via this privileged information that he gets, Theseus makes himself the center of the maze, makes himself the killing function of the Minoan maze. Oh, and by the way, I also think it's fitting that the uh, the, that this whole episode ends up with um, with this tragic turn of events for Minos, his daughter as well, which also feels a part uh, somehow of Poseidon's grand design. Yeah. uh, Yeah, that makes sense. And there's more tragedy, too, because when um, when Theseus is returning home to Athens, his father Aegeus uh, gets confused about what's happening because of the, the way the boat is returning and ends up mm-hmm. killing himself, throwing himself into the sea. Uh, and then that's how we get the name of the Aegean Sea. Yeah. So there's so many interesting themes in this story that that we can get into over the next couple of episodes. It deals with, of course, this this hybrid bull-human monster. Of course, it deals with human sacrifice. It deals uh, deals with mazes and labyrinths. Uh, there, there's a lot of rich territory here. Yes, and and certainly, an, uh, one angle on it too is is going to be just questions of the Minoan civilization of Crete and Greek perceptions of that civilization. But I want to um, I want to stress that the episode following this one will get more into that than this episode. Uh, so just just stay tuned uh, if you have a lot of, uh, of 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 nagging questions about that aspect of the myth. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, uh, we will venture into hell. All right, we're back. So I want to talk a bit about how the figure of the Minotaur developed after the the Greco-Roman world. And one example that I've come across recently, because uh, I think we've talked about this on the show, is that this year, uh, Rachel and I have been rereading The Divine Comedy, which has been surprisingly fun. Uh, I know, like, to to modern readers, that can seem kind of weird. Oh, really? You want to get into all this stuff about, you know, medieval Catholic theology and politics? But if you have an edition that's got really good notes filling you in on the historical context— 
It is actually a really fun and interesting and funny read. We've been reading from several translations. We use the uh, the Pinsky translation of the Inferno. Uh, we've been using the the Gene Hollander translation of the Purgatorio and the Paradiso, but using the notes by John Ciardi. And the, those notes, uh, Ciardi's notes are fantastic. But uh, so the Minotaur does appear in the Divine Comedy in Hell, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is in Canto Twelve. When Dante and his guide, the the Latin poet Virgil, uh, are descending into the seventh circle of hell. So, of course, Virgil is is guiding Dante through the different realms of the afterlife to sort of educate him on what awaits after death and get him to repent and, and turn more fully to God. And so they're descending through hell and Dante is witnessing all the horrors of hell. And they're going down into the seventh circle, which is reserved for people whose nature is violence. And they enter the circle by descending a fallen rock wall. And here I just want to read from the Chiardi translation. Such was the passage down the steep, and there, at the very top, at the edge of the broken cleft, lay spread the infamy of Crete, the heir of bestiality and the lecherous queen, who hid in a wooden cow, and when he saw us, he gnawed his own flesh in a fit of spleen. And my master mocked, How you do pump your breath! Do you think perhaps it is the Duke of Athens, who in the world above served up your death? Off with you, monster. This one does not come, instructed by your sister, but of himself, to observe your punishment in the lost kingdom. As a bull that breaks its chains just when the knife has struck its death blow, cannot stand nor run, but leaps from side to side with its last life, so danced the minotaur, and my shrewd guide cried out, Run now, while he is blind with rage, into the pass, quick, and get over the side." This is great, and one of the things I love about about like this this particular uh, uh, passage from Inferno is that it almost is like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yes, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff in the Inferno is that way. It's like they run into a monster or a figure, you know, an evil figure or something. Uh, there's a great part where they come up to Plutus, who's clucking at them, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- there are parts where. Uh, the beasts menacing them in un untranslatable languages of hell, you know, the tongue of the inferno, uh, poppy Satan, Aleppi and all that great stuff. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And then, and then Virgil will often like mock them or they'll kind of scramble away. And so what Virgil does is he gets the minotaur really mad and he's like stomping and, and huffing like a bull, I guess, you know, the, mm-hmm. like the Looney Tunes bull actually scratching at yeah. the ground and snorting. And then they scramble over the rocks and get away. But I like the implication of them scrambling away. This is never fully made clear in the Divine Comedy, but it makes me wonder, like, was there a possibility that Virgil and Dante could be killed while in hell and would not get to complete the tour of the afterlife? I don't know. Um, It's certainly implied. You know, there is this sense of danger at times where, where Virgil's having to, to urge him on and, and is there as a protector of sorts. So, yeah. uh, you know, in, in addition to guide. Uh, so, yeah, I always got the sense that that that, that was a possibility. And oh, and, and by the way, um, I, I was always partial to the, the Robert M. Derling uh, translations of um, of uh, Inferno and um, and Purgatory. Uh, I, as I recall, when I was reading these, they had not yet come out with uh, or they had not yet published uh, a, a, a translation of his of Paradise. But that is out now as well and has been for for years. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know anything about that translation. I'll have to look into it. I feel like I'm almost, without doing it on purpose, becoming a sort of uh, Dante translation nerd this year, <laughs> just because uh, we've been we've been looking at so many different ones. I don't remember the details on that translation so much, but but when I uh, when I studied uh, uh, Dante uh, a little bit in college, they uh, the, those were the editions that uh, our our teacher recommended. So that's the one we got, and and I, I found it quite. I, I think earlier without. The you know the aid of a of a class environment. I had tried reading some other translation, like a Penguin translation, and I didn't get as much out of it. But uh, mm-hmm. I really liked these these editions. One thing I will say, if you want to make a go of reading the Divine Comedy, I, I think it is absolutely crucial to seek out one that has really good notes. That help, absolutely that helps explain everything because these book like. This is this is medieval epic poetry that is full of uh, contemporary 
political and historical and, you know, theological, mythological references. It's just crammed with culture and cultural references that you're not going to understand unless you have some background. But if you do get the background, it can become very, like, interesting and funny watching, like, how, you know, again, like, medieval Florentine politics are projected into the afterlife. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, Dante settling old scores and picking at his enemies and also like talking about friends who, uh, you know, tragic things happen to and sort Mm -hmm. of remembering them like it's 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 a really beautiful work. And it covers it does. It covers a lot of territory. Once you even emerge from just the inferno, you'll feel like you've had a crash course in uh, in in the politics and uh, and, and religious and just cultural world of the time. Totally. Now, I wanted to talk about a couple of things about this passage that I thought were interesting. One of them is, uh, why is this where the Minotaur is in hell, in the seventh circle? I mean, one part is clear, uh, because this is the circle of violence, right? Uh, mm-hmm. One part is clear. It's the violence against others. You know, the Minotaur kills and eats people. But uh, I think there's like a threefold thing going on here, which is that the Minotaur is depicted as violent against others by killing and eating them, violent against himself because it shows him gnawing his own flesh in anger. And then finally, this is the kind of thing that shows up a lot in the Inferno. He is violent against nature by way of his monstrous hybridity. The fact that he's part human and part bull is a form of violence. Now, you could say that's not really the Minotaur's fault, but uh, in the in the medieval Catholic theology that places people in Dante's hell, a lot of people are there for things that we would say are not really their fault. Right, right. But this is also, interestingly, one of the dozens, I'd say probably hundreds of instances throughout the Divine Comedy of what I think would be called syncretism in any other context. Of course, syncretism is the the blending or mixing of different religious or cultural traditions. Uh, Dante is supposedly writing Orthodox Catholic theology in fantasy form, but throughout the Divine Comedy, he takes as real all the gods and heroes and monsters of classical Greek and Roman mythology, which would have been considered like satanic paganism in a way yeah. <laughs> uh, by, by a lot of you know Christian thinkers. But it seems for Dante, Greco-Roman mythology is, is just sort of rolled straight up into Christianity as if they are the same thing and part of the same tradition. So hell is full of figures from Greek mythology as if they actually existed and are real figures you know, dealing with with the ramifications of of Christian salvation and stuff. Yeah, it is a it is a rich uh, hell that Dante creates here, full of full of all these mythological figures, uh, these monsters, uh, also demons and devils, but also people he knew, people he liked, people he hated, re- reviled characters from recent histories. Uh, yeah, they're all there. I just find that so interesting. If anybody out there is a Dante scholar and wants to get in touch with us about the uh, the syncretistic aspects, like what, why was it seen as totally acceptable to just essentially take all of these classic Greco-Roman myths as basically true, except unfortunately Odysseus was not afforded Christian salvation. <laughs> All right. Well, we could we could obviously keep going on and on about Dante, and we should we should oh, probably yeah, we'll, we will definitely come back to Dante again in the future, and maybe we should do a proper episode uh, about uh, about Inferno as well. Uh, but let's come back to the the meat here. Let's come back to the Minotaur. Okay. So maybe we should talk about labyrinths and mazes. We alluded earlier to the fact that these. Terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but sometimes they're used to mean very distinct and different things. Yeah, at times there's this distinction between a branching assembly of artificial paths and halls that are designed to confuse. And in some cases, the, these attributes are defined as a maze, not a labyrinth. And then on the other hand, there's the idea of this complex system that has but one path through it. Uh, and this is sometimes described more as a pure labyrinth. Uh, we need not get caught up too much in the terminology here because they are used interchangeably today. Uh, but but this, is a, this idea is rather fascinating because, you know, first and foremost, a labyrinth or a maze is generally an artificial environment um, or at least an artificial reworking of the natural environment in terms of things like hedge mazes, hedge labyrinths, etc. Mm. But in, in, their, in the purer sense of the word, uh, a labyrinth or maze has no other purpose other than to confuse the individual with a complex system or to seamlessly guide them through it. 
So the sort of labyrinth one encounters on stones and church courtyards, for instance, there's only one way through. There's not, you don't have to make any decisions. You just follow the path and it will lead you through a complex system and back out again. It's essentially a mindfulness exercise. Yeah, these are sometimes the terminology used is unicursive versus multicursive. So mm-hmm. like a, if a labyrinth is the of the unicursive type, it means there's only one path. It is very complicated, but you can only basically go one direction unless you turn around and go back the way you came from. Uh, yeah. The multicursive would be the ones where you have options about which way to turn and can reach dead ends. Yeah, in one, you uh, you lose your way. In the other one, you sort of lose your, your sense of self. Yeah, and in and so the, the unicursive labyrinth, it's interesting to think how that, like, you know, it could be thought of as having metaphorical meanings. Like, it's kind of fatalistic in a way. There's only one mm-hmm. way you can go. It's also sort of a an, a an act of submission in a way. You're submitting to the designer of the labyrinth and saying, like, I will just go the only way there is to go. Yeah, and what I find interesting is that ultimately both of these interpretations work well with the Minotaur myth. I mean, we, we tend to go with the version of the, the Minoan maze or the, the, the labyrinth that the Minotaur resides in as being a place of confusion, and then the master of confusion is the Minotaur that lives there. But, uh, you know, I also like the idea of the labyrinth as a thing that is complex but leads you down one path, and that one path, of course, will take you to the maze's kill function the minotaur yeah that's it's a different kind of terror you can instead of confusion you can only go one way and you know what lies that way but you can't go back there's nowhere to go there yeah you can either go forward to death or not go at all yeah and again daedalus is the you know the master builder here so you know you can easily imagine him creating this sort of structure that is about delivering people unto the minotaur which do you think Daedalus would have been more likely to create? I mean, I think it's often described explicitly as a maze, a multi-cursive maze. But yeah. if you have the option, which is more Daedalus-like? I don't know. If he's more egotistical, if he's more you know obsessed with his own skill and all that, he might want to be the, the ultimate controller that sets you on a unicursal labyrinth where you know you have to go the way he tells you to go. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I like I think I could make a case for either way, but uh, ultimately, I, I see the the maze of the Minotaur as being a, a place of of multiple multiple branching paths and confusion. Now, I think one of the things that you begin to see, though, when you read about labyrinths and ancient accounts of alleged labyrinths, uh, aside from just how diverse the subject is, is that there, there's often a description leveled at certain ancient complexes. And, uh, and, and temples and structures like that. And over time, there's a transformation from a place that has another purpose but is also confusing into a place that was clearly designed and built to confuse. And perhaps we kind of observe the same sort of hyperbole when considering confusing store layouts, uh, you know, new cities and more, you know, where we think, oh, man, they just they just made this place to drive me crazy. Why is this place constructed like this? Um, <laughs> is uh, is like Walmart a maze, whereas Ikea is a universal labyrinth? It's true. Ikea does have that layout where you can you you can cut uh, directly through everything. Uh, but still, they are very much guiding your path. So I don't know. I don't have much experience with Ikea. I went there once, and I remember it being more more like that. There is a Minotaur. Oh, really? They say. Oh, but it's called Flingbo with an umlaut. <laughs> Probably. But coming back to what you were saying about places with an original use being later confused for a labyrinth, I think that that actually does apply to uh, some possible ruins in Egypt, which um, have been interpreted by some archaeologists, or maybe not archaeologists, by some thinkers throughout history as something that was supposed to be a confusing maze or labyrinth, but in fact was probably just some kind of like temple or burial complex that has been, you know, massively degraded in a structural sense over time and appears confusing to people who are unearthing and exploring it now. Yeah, this is the case of the the ancient Egyptian labyrinth, uh, so it is, was often referred. Uh, I was reading about this in a book by William Henry Matthews, Mazes and, uh, and Labyrinths. This is a, a seminal work on the subject, uh, but uh, he mentions just the, the evocative language of, of using labyrinth, uh, quote, a structure which evoked so much wonder and admiration in ancient times uh, that can uh, hardly fail to have roused the curiosity of later generations. And so when he's talking about the the ancient Egyptian labyrinth, this is interesting because this is the, the oldest structure or place that apparently has been described in these terms. And it was described by the likes of Herodotus. Um, 
Now, these these whatever this exactly was, it did not survive destruction during Roman times. Uh, and it, it seems, though, that it was some sort of temple structure or some sort of temple compound. It definitely was not created just to confuse foreigners, um, much like um, foreign airports that you travel to were not designed just to confuse you, even though that is the effect you may feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, the thing that confuses foreigners becomes a thing that was built to confuse them uh, in these tellings. Oh, that's uh, like one of those egocentric biases we've discovered where you think that the uh, the effect a thing has on you is the purpose it was intentionally created for. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote uh, that, that gets uh, into some of this, too, that I ran across. This is from Pe- Penelope Reed uh, Dube from The Idea of the Labyrinth from Classical Antiquity Through the Middle Ages. Quote, what you see depends on where you stand. And thus, uh, at one and the same time, labyrinths are single. There is one physical structure and double. They simultaneously incorporate order and disorder, clarity and confusion, unity and multiplicity, artistry and chaos. Nice. Much like the Minotaur and his double nature. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to say, I see another common tre- trend as well. If you write about mazes and labyrinths, or even if you do um, a little podcast uh, that covers them, um, if you're doing fiction or nonfiction, it doesn't matter. Uh, if, if, you, if you do something about mazes and labyrinths, you're going to end up crafting or traversing this sort of literary um, uh, maze or labyrinth as well. <laughs> uh, this is something that's, that's often, you know, cited in these works, like just straight up, either as, you know, sometimes in jest, but other times as part of the texture of the piece. Almost more than any other physical object or structure in the world, the maze or labyrinth just asks you to use it as a metaphor. Exactly. I mean, the maze is time, right? It's like you can't yeah, see yeah. around the corner. Yeah, the maze is time. I, I think that the maze is is the world, but it's also our perception of the world. Um, and, and again, I think that's why this idea so engages us. There's like there's basically no complex system. Uh, in the world or in our you know information technology etc uh, that you cannot apply the metaphor of the of the, the maze and the minotaur to and get something memorable out of it uh, you know there's like any complex system i don't i don't care if it's the law or politics or or science i mean whatever it is there is conceivably a minotaur in there <laughs> all right on that note we're going to take a quick break but we will be right back All right, we're back. Now, I think it's time that we talk a little bit of Minotaur biology, because (laughs) one of the things that I have always wondered about the Minotaur is, why does it eat humans? Now, I could imagine if the Minotaur was not the Minotaur, but say the Minocroc, and it had the head of a crocodile. Mm -hmm. A crocodile, that could eat a human. And so you could totally understand why the human with the head of a crocodile would live at the center of a maze and eat 14 youths from Athens every year. But bulls do not normally eat humans. A bull is a herbivore. It eats grass or it eats grain or, you know, it can, of course, eat some uh, animal protein supplemented grain if that's what you're feeding it. But in the natural world, we do not think of bovines like bulls and cows as hunting and eating other animals, certainly not other mammals. So why doesn't the minotaur just eat grass? Well, I think maybe we've got a good answer for you. Uh, And it's along some lines that might be familiar to listeners of the show now. We've already ruined squirrels for you. You know, sometimes a squirrel just needs to eat a bird or another rodent. How do you Mm -hmm. like that? Well, we're going to do the same thing with cattle. Uh, Joe, I am I am happy uh, to report uh, that chipmunks have also uh, developed an appetite for the mealworms that I put out for the squirrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, that's that's been one of my recent observations uh, uh, here in quarantine. Oh, more beautiful rodents getting in on the the animal flesh action. Yeah, but they're adorable when they do it. Chipmunks cannot help but be adorable. Uh, but but as far as the myth goes, I guess I gathered that the Minotaur has been starved. He is down there like an animal in a pit, uh, so he's going to tear into whatever he gets. But then on the other hand, of course, he is not entirely bull. He is also part human, and humans eat meat. But yeah, but if he was fully human, wouldn't that mean he would eat twice as much meat as a cat? It just doesn't make sense that like adding part bull to him would make him more desiring of human flesh, except in the general logic of, well, he's a monster and monsters eat humans. Hmm. So maybe he could also have the head of a rabbit and he would eat humans. 
You, <laughs> you would not be as terrifying, would he? But yeah, this brings us back to some of the best of, of modern zoology, which is that uh, some of the animals, many of the animals that subsist largely on plant-based food are actually able to eat meat. We now know this in the modern world, especially with you know modern video documentation. You can learn quite a bit about what supposedly docile herbivores will do when given the opportunity. Uh, and it appears that bovines are no exception. So I want to start with a story that was reported in Reuters from March 7th, 2007. Uh, this is uh, Dateline Calcutta. Quote, when dozens of chickens went missing from a remote West Bengal village, everyone blamed the neighborhood dogs. That would make sense, right? You know, the dogs get into the chicken coop. Uh, but it continues. But Ajit Ghosh, the owner of the missing chickens, eventually solved the puzzle when he caught his cow, a sacred animal for the Hindu family, gobbling up several of them at night. That's gobbling up several of the chickens, not of the family. We were shocked to see our calf eating chickens alive, Ghosh told Reuters by phone from Chandpur village. The family decided to stand guard at night on Monday at the cow shed, which also served as a hen coop after 48 chickens went missing in a month. Instead of the dogs, we watched in horror as the calf, whom we had fondly named Lal, sneaked to the coop and grabbed the little ones with the precision of a jungle cat, said his brother, Gorgosh. Uh, and then it goes on to describe how a local television station in India went to the village to get pictures of the cow grabbing and eating a chicken. Uh, and uh, then the article consults Mihir Satpathy, who is a district veterinary officer, who said, quote, We think lack of vital minerals in the body is causing this behavior. We have taken a look and asked doctors to look into the case immediately. The strange behavior is possible in some exceptional cases. So it says that hundreds of villagers had come to Chandpur to uh, to watch the cow eat and sometimes eat chickens. Um, and uh, it said that local veterinary authorities believe the cow was probably suffering from some kind of disease that made it eat these chickens. But ultimately, they didn't really know. Now, on one hand, I would say, OK, this is a Reuters report. I think of Reuters as very credible reporting. But also, this story feels very Daily Mail. You know, I, I, I could easily react to this and say, this is, I, I don't know, I, I don't trust this reporting, except that there's video. I don't necessarily recommend people watch it, uh, because I don't know if, if you are inclined to feeling bad about watching a, chi a live chicken get eaten whole by a cow. If that sounds like something that would upset you, don't check out this video. <laughs> but if you're interested, look at it. It just, yeah, it's just a chicken wanders up in front of the cow and the cow just bites it and eats its whole body. Oh, man. Well, you know, this this brings a few thoughts to mind. First of all, in terms of relatives of the cow that eat meat, I mean, now you can certainly point, uh, you know, not, not a, directly, but by, you know, a, a few degrees removed to uh, carnivorous whales. Yes, that is interesting. And actually, I, sh I wish I'd looked this up. I don't know if the ancestors of whales, of course, one of the most fascinating things about whale biology is that we now know that whales evolved from a creature that once dwelt on land. So the, the ancestors of whales going way back were land-dwelling tetrapod mammals, four-footed mammals that walked around on the earth. And we know that over millions of years, they gradually adapted and evolved to a sea-based existence. And I don't know if their ancestors on land were carnivorous or not, or if they transitioned to eating meat once they became uh, full-time dwellers of the sea. Well, this makes me think also of horses because there are tales of horses eating meat as well. Um, and I, I, I was not familiar with the story previously, but uh, even uh, Shackleton, um, uh, the, the explorer, uh, noted uh, his, uh, his, his pony socks uh, preferring a, a meat-based diet in, uh, in, uh, some, in uh, the, you know, the harsher climates. This would have been in 1908, I believe. Yeah, so there are a lot of these little stories here and there, and you wonder if you should believe the stories. Now, in the case of the uh, cow in the West Bengal village, there's at least video or there's video of a cow eating a chicken that I think is video of that cow. I can't be 100% mm -hmm. certain, but whatever cow it is, it's eating a chicken. I don't think there's any uh, special effects involved. But uh, but but no, apparently this is it's not limited to just these few weird cases described in the extreme. Uh, for example, 
I was reading a paper in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology from 2005 by Jamie L. Knack and Christine A. Ribic, or Ribich, R-I-B-I-C, called Apparent Predation by Cattle at Grassland Bird Nests. The authors here were documenting pastures in southwestern Wisconsin during the years 2000 to 2001, which were used for cattle grazing. Uh, So there's video documentation of what's going on in these pastures. And uh, it was noticed, uh, there was something odd that was noticed about this video. Cattle appeared to be mostly grazing, but also occasionally, quote, behaving as avian predators, removing nestlings and eggs from three active ground nests. So with video documentation, they showed that cattle were removing eggs and baby birds from bird nests that were on the ground or at ground level and probably eating them. Uh, A couple of the nests belong to the Savannah Sparrow, Pacerculus sandwichensis, that is its name. Uh, And in one of these Savannah Sparrow nests, they removed three of the four eggs from the nest and they damaged the fourth egg. In the other Savannah Sparrow nest, they removed all three of the nestlings. So these were baby birds that were already hatched there. They took them out of the nest. There was another nest that belonged to the eastern meadowlark, which is Sternella magna. And the cattle apparently took all four nestlings out of this nest. Uh, The authors write, quote, We found only two of the three missing eggs intact and one of seven missing nestlings dead near two of the nests. Cows may have eaten the egg and nestlings we were unable to account for. Alternatively, the egg and nestlings may have been scavenged by predators or removed from the area by the adult birds. Without videotape documentation, we would have attributed nest failure to traditional predators, and cattle would not have been implicated. We may be underestimating the impact of cattle on ground nests by not considering cattle as potential predators. This is almost like you're wondering, you know, you find like your window broken and several items missing from your house and you assume it is a burglar until the, I don't know, until the the security camera footage reveals it was your house cat. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the cows are out there in the field. They're easy to take for granted. Um, I also love how this feels very much like something from a Gary Larson Farside cartoon. Yes. This is exactly what his cows would be up to. They got out their cow tools and they they went to town on the nests. Um, So what do we make of this? Well, I was reading about this on a blog post by the British paleozoologist Darren Neish. He's got a blog called Tetrapod Zoology. It's a very good blog. Uh, And Neish makes the following points. First of all, a lot of animals that we understand as strict herbivores are just not really that strict. Uh, you know, they are primarily herbivores, but there are certain scenarios where eating of other animals is, quote, absolutely deliberate and likely motivated by a need for calcium. This brings us back to the squirrels, right? This came up in some of our research about squirrels gnawing on the bones of other animals, a a leading hypothesis to explain why something that is mostly herbivorous would sometimes need to like eat a bird skull or something. And the idea is that there are certain mineral deficiencies that can lead to it, primarily calcium. Uh, But deer and other hoofed animals in particular have frequently been observed eating the antlers and bones of other dead animals. Uh, Red deer or Cervus elaphus sometimes eat seabirds, but nice reports that they sometimes appear to intentionally avoid eating the flesh of the birds, sort of separating out the bones and just eating those bones. He also mentions the study that I just talked about where uh, videotape caught domestic cattle raiding ground level bird nests and apparently eating the birds, uh, eating the chicks and the eggs. And uh, Nish says, quote, this behavior is likely opportunistic, but may well be common and widespread. It is difficult to document since it mostly occurs at night and no evidence remains. I guess unless you're just randomly picking through, you know, cow feces to see if there are bird bones in it. <laughs> and then there are just a bunch of other examples. It, it often appears to be opportunistic. A cow is not going to chase down a human and eat it, but small defenseless animals are, they might just sort of be in the why not zone. Now there are a few other reasons that animals we think of as strict herbivores might sometimes eat meat. Uh, Nish points out a study from 2000 by BB and Griffiths that documented how cattle drinking from water sources often 
accidentally ingest lots of water-dwelling life, say tadpoles. So they are eating the tadpoles, but it doesn't appear to be on purpose. They're just sort of like getting sucked into the mouth. In the same way, I think probably grazing herbivores end up eating a lot of insects without meaning to. I think a lot of carnivory by herbivores is probably just a result of not being super picky or careful while eating plants or drinking water. Right. So one option is that some herbivores deliberately eat other animals to make up for a mineral deficiency. Another option is it's just accidental. Uh, but then Nish goes on to say, quote, but as shown by the studies cited below, bird eating in bovids and deer may actually just be a fairly normal bit of behavior that we're only beginning to document. I also think that individuals of herbivorous species sometimes learn, quote, accidentally that they can kill and eat other animals and then take to this habit as and when the opportunity arises. That is, because they can, not because they need to. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that animals and other organisms likely do a lot of things simply because they can, not because their anatomy or physiology is, spe is specifically suited to that activity. So there seems to be uh, quite possibly a role for just sort of, you know, uh, almost like Skinnerian kind of adaptation, right? If you just happen to eat an animal one time and it works out just fine for you, you might well learn that like, oh, you know, this is a, this is a beneficial activity I never thought of doing before, but I can just keep repeating it if it seems to yield a benefit. Uh, and I think sometimes when we consider ideas like b being a, a herbivore or a carnivore, I think the metabolic bottleneck is is not nearly as likely to rule out meat as it is to rule out tough, fibrous, or chemically hostile plant matter. I mean, what you, what you need to have a really specialized uh, digestive system to digest, I would think, is probably more likely to be plants than to be meat. Animal flesh is relatively energy-rich and easy to digest. Yeah, I mean, we certainly see that in in uh, animals like the panda, uh, which uh, would have uh, adapted over time from uh, this um, uh, more varied diet to a very particular uh, um, uh, herbivorous diet. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, obviously different animals have differently specialized digestive systems. Those are shaped by evolution like everything else. But Without being sure, I'd imagine it's probably easier for more herbivores to get down on some available meat than it would be for carnivores to try to survive on leaves. Hmm, that's interesting. But this, I don't know, this is one of those many things where you start to wonder about what undocumented observations could have occurred in the ancient world. You know, if somebody suddenly had a cow like Lol that starts eating chickens or somebody has a, a, a bull that starts eating, I don't know, whatever kind of meat you give to it. Could that give rise to the idea that, uh, that well, maybe there's some kind of like hidden monstrous nature that is easy to unlock when you starve a bull and make meat its only opportunity to get calories? Huh. Well, you know, I'm not as well read on, on this episode, but the Minotaur would not be the only Greek mythological um, herbivore to eat uh, meat, specifically the meat of humans, because you also have the, the mares of Diomedes, the, uh, the man-eating oh, yeah. herd of horses that were one of the labors of Hercules. Right. He had to, to corral them or something, right? Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I, if I remember correctly, like there, it's, it's sometimes implied that like this is part of their magical nature that they, they eat humans. But other times it's like it's the idea is they've been conditioned to do so because this is the way their master treats them. Yeah, uh, they, they feed unsuspecting guests on the island to these man-eating horses. Wow. I mean, I would be surprised – again, I don't know, but I would be surprised if a, if a bovine could live entirely on meat. I mean, it, seems, it does have a ruminant digestive system that is in many ways specialized to eating tough plant matter. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could probably get by feeding, <laughs> feeding a well-adapted bull or cow all kinds of strange things if you give it an acquired taste. So, uh, yeah. so it's possible something like this lies behind the horror of the Minotaur. Yeah. If Ernest Shackleton gives you um, some feed with some, uh, some meat added to it, uh, you want seconds. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up for part one here, but there is so much more fun Minotaur stuff to talk about. We need to talk about Minoan Crete. Uh, we got to talk about uh, other uh, weird scientific interpretations of the origin of the Minotaur legend. Uh, I'm, I, I'm so excited for part two. I can't wait. 
Oh, and by the way, we originally intended for part two of our Minotaur series to come out uh, this following Thursday. Uh, Due to some scheduling uh, issues, we're going to actually have to air part two uh, the next Tuesday. So it'll be a week out from this episode. So you have an extra week there to be lost in the maze. Uh, since we're talking about myths uh, and, and monsters, uh, first of all, we have other episodes in the vault dealing with these, such as uh, the Medusa episodes. We have episodes that deal with Daedalus uh, in more detail. But also, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that will shoot you over to our iHeart page. And if you look over to the, the, the right there, you'll see some show links and you'll see something that says store. Click on that. See, I'm guiding you through the labyrinth here. Okay. Click on that, and you will go to our T Public store. And here you'll find uh, we actually have some monstrous uh, shirts available. We have, of course, the the All Hail the Great Basilisk uh, shirt uh, that relates to a monster episode. We have two different monstrous squirrel episodes, one with a squirrel gnawing on a bone with death in its eyes, and then we have the Skug King of Rats shirt. And... Uh, it is, I am I am to understand that there will soon be an additional Medusa shirt added that says petrifying gaze with a with an illustration that my son created. Uh, of, so it's like it's drawn by an eight year old, an eight year old's uh, dedicated idea of what uh, the Medusa looks like. Lest it be forgotten, your son was also the origin of the phrase "Skug King of Rats," which I think might be my favorite shirt in our store. I love my Skug King of Rats shirt. <laughs> yeah, he still wears. He was wearing this the other day. Um, that's why he is um, a head of marketing. Well-deserved promotion. Now, wherever you get our podcast, we do just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe, um, uh, especially if those are positive ratings, <laughs> positive <laughs> reviews. Um, then, you, then you should do so. That's a way you can help us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact. Contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.